Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. This is an episode I've been wanting to do ever since season one, but I only recently found the right person to tell the story. I've been wanting to do a story on what it feels like to spiral into psychosis and then find a way back with the help of antipsychotics. And our storyteller, Steve, does a beautiful job with this. Psychiatric meds so often get demonized in the media, including in the podcast world. And yes, while psych meds are far from perfect and often cause problematic side effects, they also literally save people's lives every single day. I vividly remember a patient I saw many years ago during my residency, late one night in the Rhode Island Hospital ER. I walked into this concrete, bare-walled psychiatric holding room, and there was a 40-ish-year-old man. His hospital Johnny was yanked up over his neck, and he was licking the wall and masturbating and making this bizarre sort of buzzing noise. And I tried to speak with him, but he couldn't or wouldn't communicate with me. And then fast forward 10 days, and I was starting a new rotation at the intensive outpatient program at the same hospital. My first task was to do the discharge interviews for that morning. And my very first patient was the man I had seen in the ER 10 days before. At first, I didn't even recognize him. He was so professionally dressed and smiling and engaging, so healthy-seeming. I checked the chart, saw my admit note, and saw that he had started on an antipsychotic right after admission. I remember saying to him, we met when you came in. Do you remember? And he looked at me confused, and he apologized, and he said, that that night was a really frightening blur. And he shook my hand and left and said that he planned to return later that week to his job as an electrical engineer. And it was like some kind of miracle, but it wasn't a miracle. It was the beauty and wonder of psychopharmacology. And today, today we hear Steve's powerful story. Steve grew up as the youngest of four, a happy boy in a happy family, a quote-unquote golden childhood, as he described it to me, until everything fell apart. Within a period of just a few years, he lost his father and both of his beloved older brothers, all while still a teenager, leaving him with his mom and an older sister. His family had been cut in half, and Steve was left reeling. Do you remember... What was going like through your mind and spirit back then? So you're a boy who's lost his father and two of his older brothers, right? And so uh, you still have an older sister and mom, but but basically, what half of your family has been wiped out? Yeah, and for me, the strongest emotions I felt were rage and alienation. I did not feel like I could really interact with other people who were in my peer group uh who were just living living their lives and um doing normal teenage things and i i just threw myself into i threw myself into athletics and i threw myself into dangerous things so i would go car surfing like I would go stand on the tops of cars while they were driving down the road I would go free climbing free soloing uh, where I'd be climbing on rock faces with no ropes 
And it was all about pushing myself physically. Almost like taunting death. Exactly. Like you took my dad, you took my brothers. Are you going to take me? Yeah. So I had really just kind of given up on the concept of a future. Like both my, both my brothers had died in their early twenties. And so it, it really didn't seem like I was going to live beyond 20 or 30. Like, I mean, I, I just didn't expect, uh, a life ahead. And you still had an older sister and could she be a support or mentor for you? Or, or, or I imagine she also was going through her own horror. She, she was struggling like we all were, but she was really, really helpful to me during that time. She was the person who understood what it was like to go through that stuff. It helped me as a salve when very few other things would help me. And it made what would ultimately happen in the rest of my life much worse. So she was in college during this time. I looked up to her a lot. After she left college, she went abroad. She was abroad for a few years teaching English. And after a few years, unexpectedly, one day, my mom and I got a phone call. And it was an airline. And the airline was calling to ask what medicines my sister was on because she just punched a stewardess and the airline was making an emergency landing on the west coast it was supposed to be going to Boston my mom had to go out there uh, to pick her up and they're asking about whether she was schizophrenic and whether there's a history of schizophrenia in the family at that time, we'd never, we'd never had that history. Did your sister ever show any signs of psychiatric illness prior to going abroad to teach? Uh, I mean, again, I'm imagining she's lost her two brothers, her father. She's trying to kind of mentor, care for you, who's in such pain. I mean, I could imagine where she... She had so, I mean, all of you had so much on your plate, but she was really also trying to care for you. Yeah, I mean, during that time, my sister did a lot of self-medication. Uh, she smoked a lot of pot. There were some phone calls during that time that were a little weird, uh, but being an adult now and having gone through those experiences, I'm pretty sure that was just because she was high. Um, and not because of psychiatric issues. There weren't really precursors. It only came out after a lot of hospitalization and a lot of therapy when she came back that she had been sexually assaulted while she was abroad. We believe that that was the trigger for her psychotic symptoms for her psychotic symptoms yeah. 
So she comes back from being a teacher and she's now changed. She's, she gets a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Yeah, and she was actually a catatonic schizophrenic. So she would go unresponsive for long periods of time, essentially like being in a coma. And she was hospitalized several times for catatonia. Did she get ECT? She did get ECT. Um, and she did not appreciate getting ECT. Wasn't helpful. Um, it got her out of the catatonia, but uh, in her recollections of ECT, she always said, they shocked me. Like, they, they electrified me. I'm not going back there. And I'm guessing, too, just thinking time-wise, she would have been... This would have been probably, what, like early 90s, midnight? This is mid-90s. Yeah, so so a lot of uh, antipsychotic medication we have now wasn't yet available. We had ECT. We had some of the older antipsychotics then. Older antipsychotics. And the older antipsychotics did not work well for her. Uh, She was on Haldol, um, and I forget the others that she was on, but they tried a range of antipsychotics on her, and... She gained a lot of weight. She still heard voices. She still saw vampires. She still had just a hard time living her life. I mean, she she couldn't read. Um, like, it was very hard for her to, to be able to read when she was on the antipsychotics. She just felt dull and numb. As Steve's sister's illness worsened, he began to struggle in college, missing classes, unable to study or function. He decided to leave school to work, to travel, to try to clear his head. And eventually, he returned home to visit his mom and sister, right at the time that his sister was again spiraling down into a catatonic psychosis. She was was on the couch, and... She was just kind of being unresponsive for periods of maybe like an hour, two hours. And then she'd maybe like do some stuff, maybe go to the bathroom. Um, But she wasn't like fully catatonic where she'd just soil herself. Uh, And my mother had been watching her. And we'd had a family friend who'd been watching her for a while, too. And that was really important because she was at a point where she was threatening my mother a lot. Um, She was often threatening to kill my mother. It was just a really hard situation. And my mom was clearly really needing a break. And so she went to do some errands. And I was the only one home. I had taken a red eye in from the West Coast at that point. I was just tired. It was, it was just, I'd, I'd been on a long flight all night. Ultimately, I took a nap. I went upstairs. I went to bed. And during the time that I was asleep, before my mom came home, 
my sister walked out the door. And she just kept walking. I didn't, at the time, understand what was going through her mind before she left. I didn't understand what it was like to to have that illness. I didn't understand how just going out the door might be something that was irreversible. So she left that building and she never came back. I called the cops after my mom would come home and asked where she was. And a cop had seen her walking, but obviously hadn't stopped her. I tried reporting her as missing, but I was told at the time that we had to wait 24 hours to file missing persons report, which, again, I was in my early 20s. I didn't know this stuff, but that's not true. Um, in most states, in most states, you can you can report a person missing when they're missing. And they asked me if I wanted to declare her danger to herself and others, and they would put out an APB. And I didn't want her committed, so I didn't do that. She'd been committed so many times before, but I didn't want her involuntarily mm. committed. So when you're involuntarily committed, you don't have rights. You can't decide your course of treatment. When she was committed before to get her out of the, the catatonias, they'd use ECT. And like she did not like that. And I didn't want her to be in a position where she was just stuck in a mental institution for the rest of her life. Yeah. So your decision to say she wasn't a danger danger to herself or others really was your deep consideration for her that you'd seen her suffer in locked units and get ECT that she didn't want. And you were actually trying to be kind. And what I didn't realize at the time was that she wouldn't come back. We thought she would come back. And we went looking for her, and we couldn't find her. And I spent years looking. And I thought I would see her all the time. I mean, like when one person goes missing in your family, you just think you see them everywhere. It wasn't until two years later that I got a call from my mom saying that a hunter in some woods near our house had found a skeleton and that they'd identified the dental records and that it was her.
wonder, I wonder if she was hiding or maybe didn't want to be found. Just imagine like how much fear she may have been going through or I don't know. I mean, do you have a sense of, and we'll never know, but I'm wondering if you have a story you tell, you tell yourself why she left. In my mind, it's me. It's me coming home. I like went downstairs and she was being unresponsive. I kept on poking her in the arm and being like, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. She woke up, but I don't think, I don't think she saw me as me. I think I was just a new threat. I think she was leaving the threat. To this day, this is the greatest failure in my life. Because if I had just left her alone on the couch, if I had said she was a danger to herself or others, if I had just not gone to sleep, she'd still be here. That's such a painful story to hold. I mean, I understand why you hold that, but Gosh, there's so many other ways that that could have unfolded. Yeah. She was so ill. She was so deep in her fear and delusions. And yeah, I think as, you know, as you said, she probably almost, almost surely couldn't experience you as you were, her younger brother who was poking her in the arm. Hey, get up. What are you doing? But she maybe took you as some sort of malevolent threat or... Intruder. And I mean, I think for me, I would not really appreciate that until over a decade later. That experience is is really what I want to talk about right now. Yeah. yeah. Before we get to what happened to you, you know, a decade later, maybe just say a little bit about what that process looked like for you. Again, now you've lost fourth member of your family, but, but unlike the other three, this one you're holding yourself directly accountable, that you're thinking if I had done things differently, she might still be alive. I mean, what, what happens for you in the weeks, months, and years after your sister's death? After we got the news that they had identified the skeleton and we knew that she was gone and we weren't searching anymore. I shut down. I really couldn't interact with the world. I quit the tech job that I had. I just remember darkness. Darkness and anger and guilt. I remember being in the house I grew up in and it was really, really cold out. It was like negative 10 or something with wind chill. I mean, it was, it was a cold night in the Northeast. There was a little plant in our house that was an indoor plant that was just tr- was by the heater 
and it was just trying to sprout because like the heater had come on and like the temperatures had changed and all this stuff and I just remember looking at that and thinking like there can still be life like like even in this like cold desolate night there can still be life I left the East Coast again and went back out west. I went to a horse ranch. I started doing a lot of physical manual labor. Prior to that, I'd been coding and doing tech stuff, and like I just worked with my hands, digging ditches, fixing fence posts, shoveling horse shit. And that started to help rebuild myself because, I mean, I, I kept on having memories of some of the more traumatic aspects of them finding the skeleton. So when they found the skeleton, we, we were asked to identify the remains, which, I mean, I don't even know why they do this because it's just like, it's this procedural thing but it's just horrible. Um, like there, there's a little bit of cloth that I had to try to remember if that was the blanket that she had. It took a long time to get myself out of that hole. I had some, some opportunity to do some work outside of the ranch too, and was able to get good health care and, uh, was able to, to start some therapy and take uh, some antidepressants that helped me rebuild myself enough to be able to go back into the world. But there's a long period where I was like a person made of tissue paper doused in gasoline. Anything could set me off. And, and when it set me off, it was like either going to be rage or desolation. Like those were the two emotions I had. I could be either completely disconsolate or completely just angry. Suicidal. I did a lot of dumb things during that time. I, mean, I, I, I was still free climbing, but I ended up fracturing my spine. I fell off a cliff that, that stopped my free climbing. I was driving really fast on like dark roads with, with lots of curves and like just, just dumb stuff but I never tried to commit suicide. As Steve regained some measure of hope and health, he returned to work in the tech world, but he found it empty and meaningless. He found himself increasingly drawn to activists, in particular to those working in international aid and development. So Steve started taking vacations to places far off the grid and his eyes opened to the sorrows and suffering and challenges of the developing world. 
He began to work in far-off places as a volunteer, doing relief work. He saw this work as a type of karmic retribution for not saving his sister. Working in international development opened up my eyes to the range of human experience and the range of suffering that people went through. And it made me feel not alone in suffering. It made me feel like my experience was almost, I mean, not pedestrian, but, but almost not uncommon. It showed me other people who had been through trauma and sometimes trauma far exceeding trauma that I had been through who were living their lives and finding joy and happiness in their lives. And I think that combined with the, the Buddhist practice that I'd, I'd been trying to hold to and, and the meditation I was doing really helped me move my life forward during that period. But it didn't prepare me for the thing that would give me true empathy for my sister. I wonder if we might just say one quick thing about this idea of people who have trauma way worse. Because what I hear you saying is, you know, going internationally and, and working in places where, you know, people lose half their children. And you're just untold suffering, that there was some healing in that. But also, it, you know, it, it's something I hear a lot in the therapy office, you know, that people... You know, we always compare ourselves to other people. And there's, yeah. I think, particularly people who've been through trauma, grief, suffering, it's so tempting to feel like, you know, our, um, we should have been stronger, or other people's trauma is worse, or, you know, wh how, why am I in this chair with Dr. Heacock when you know, I know people that have been through far more awful stuff. Uh, but I'm guessing, I know for sure that people are listening to your story right now thinking like, this is awful but i think if we could do you know listeners at poll is steve's trauma worse than episode two season one or episode three you know it's it's different it's it, it, it's, it's all, all it's all different it's all different it's, it's all different the thing that we can gain from comparison is hope i mean i it's it's not it's not comparison to lighten or lessen what any individual has been through, but to see an individual go through something terrible and to come out the other side stronger, that can give you a lot of hope, mm -hmm. especially when the darkness seems impenetrable. I mean, it's like, it's like that plant I saw like just trying to grow. I mean, like it just takes a little spark of hope to get you through really dark times. And that's actually, if there's anything that, that I hope listeners take away from the rest of the story, it's that there is always hope. Mm -hmm. So there you are, you know, facing the pain of some of the poorest people on the planet and actually finding yourself getting better, 
get, getting more like starting to slowly heal and feel like you're helping and putting some of your, as you said, regaining hope that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think that in that work, it is affirming work. So, so international development, like, especially when you're starting is very, very affirming and it helps you feel like you are making a difference in this world. Um, cause often you are, you are the person who is helping mediate somebody else's suffering and alleviate that. And that is, that is a great feeling, but it's a feeling with danger too, because the scale of the problems far exceed anything any individual can do. And there's a lot of risk of getting swallowed by the scale of the problems. And that is something that I only learned after we started doing a lot more disaster response. We responded to a bunch of disasters, but uh, one really major one where there were there were thousands of people who, who passed away. I remember during that time, I was in positions where I was interacting with a lot of people of power, a lot of people high in government positions, high in the UN, major international development banks. I felt a lot of stress because I couldn't move the needle on trying to make a difference with the scale of the problem. For, for all the people I talked to, that problem was just swallowing all of what we could give and what I could motivate people to give. I ended up having having a period where, where I was smoking a lot of pot to try to relax and just chill out. One night I had some edibles. That was the beginning. Some THC edibles. Some THC edibles, yeah, exactly. And that was the beginning for me of a very life-changing experience. That night I had a psychotic break. Unlike a hallucination that might be drug-induced, that might last for a few hours, this did not go away. So I ended up being psychotic for a period that was months. But without insight, as, as this is unfolding, there's not part of you saying, I'm having a psychotic episode. Yeah, yeah. So there, there's no insight. So it, it's when it started out, I... It started out by me seeing, just kind of glancing, like out of the corner of my eye, me seeing a headless child beckoning me to go into 
the compound where I was working. And then I started hearing what I thought were intelligence agents of some government in the building across from us surveilling me. And you got to understand, like at the time with the people that I was interacting with, that would be a totally rational thought. <laughs> like that, that would be, that, that would, that would not be a psychotic thought. Um, but I but, think that brings up a good point. If I might just interject for a second is that so often psychosis comes out of real things you know, twisted 40 degrees to the right. Exactly. You know, it's not, psychosis typically doesn't come, it, it comes out of the substrate, kind of the crucible you're in, and then it gets just infused with suspiciousness, fear, dread, and increasingly bizarre and frightening connections. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think for me, it it started there, and it started with me feeling like my computer was hacked, really having this paranoia. But... As I I started going on with the next couple of days, I was driving back to another city where we had another office, and it was like an eight-hour drive. And like, I swore people were following me. And then it got worse, and I swore that the the United Nations troops, and I swore that the police that were patrolling the streets were after me. I freaked out and I started hiding in the, there's like a little bit of woods. Um, I started hiding in the woods and I made my way up to like this hotel. And I locked myself in the hotel room. It got worse and worse where like the intelligence agents had found my family and they were torturing them. And they started playing tapes of them being tortured. Just non-stop. That you could hear in your head. That I could hear in my head. Just like horrible stuff. Just non-stop. And then it turned out that they were, like the intelligence people were like aligned with the Antichrist. And I was supposed to, like, like, it got totally crazy like i'd be like the person who is supposed to help the second coming of christ deal with like the rise of authoritarian artificial intelligence and like the antichrist leading that and like i mean it was and are you at this point are you able to kind of put up a front and people around you are thinking that yes yeah, steve's okay or are they actually getting very worried well at this point i'm locked in a hotel room but I'm still sending emails that are totally professional. It was insane. I, I, I could write a totally professional email canceling a meeting with somebody at the UN and everything seemed fine. But at the same time, I was hearing in my head nonstop these torture tapes. I wasn't able to sleep very much 
but it was only after a little bit of sleep that I woke up one, as like very early morning, but this morning I woke up and I realized I was having a psychotic break. This was just like my sister. In that like very brief moment of clarity, I called my wife. And she started motivating people to, or mobilizing people, um, to uh, get me out of that country. Did you go willingly? I mean, could people come up to you and say, hey, it's time to go back to the U.S.? Or yeah, yeah. given so, how frightened and just overwhelmed and so out of your mind that you were? It was, it was really weird because, like, I would have... I would have these hallucinations where I wouldn't be opening the door. And I'd be like, I'm only going to open the door if you send someone I trust. And then, like, there'd be a knock on the door and it'd literally be a friend of mine who was checking in because my wife was sending them over to check in on me. I did, I did have a friend who was a doctor... They couldn't get me antipsychotics there, but they got me some sleep meds so that I could try to like get some sleep. I remember standing with her just almost being like so scared that I was going to run away from this hotel compound into this city of millions of people. If I had done that, it would have been like my sister. I would have either died of dehydration or some other means. At that time, I wasn't eating things because I thought they were poisoned. I mean, there's at least three, I can see, really key parallels with you and your sister in that both of you were in a time of horrific stress, her in another country after sexual assault, and you facing the most overwhelming disaster that you'd ever been a part of. And then both of you using THC weed to try to cope and then each of you having a psychotic break at least part of which involved needing wanting to flee yeah needing to get away go to the woods escape from the danger yeah even beyond that when i came back to the states i started having copgross syndrome so i didn't think that my wife was my wife i didn't think my mother was my mother my friend was my friend i thought they were all intelligence agents who were posing, who had taken over for my loved ones. Yeah, that's called Capgras syndrome. Yeah, Capgras syndrome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How and scary is that? It was, it was terrifying. Like, my wife, my wife showed me, like, it was hard, really hard for her, too. Um, and she was showing me the photo album of us getting married. And I was thinking that everything in the photo album was like a reshot photoshopped thing where they had photoshopped the face of this intelligence agent over my wife. I started crying because my wife was gone and my wife was being tortured and they had left me with this intelligence agent. And are you on meds at this point? At this point, I had just started taking a few meds, um, but they weren't working. I had started taking, like my sister had taken Haldol, and it wasn't working. I mean, do you remember having enough insight then that, you know, once you're starting to take meds, I mean, are you thinking, 
this could be like my sister. Like I'm going to start taking meds that aren't going to work and I'm going to. I, I didn't have enough insight to think that, but I did thankfully have this happen at a time when the meds had changed. So they started putting me on Zyprexa and then Abilify and the voices went away. On Abilify. On Abilify. A little bit on Zyprexa, but completely on Abilify. And it was like magic. I mean, it was, it was the magic of psychopharmacology. An incredible moment where I suddenly felt like I had my life back. And that was just both extremely powerful and extremely sad because I realized at that moment that if these meds had existed when my sister was sick, my sister would be fine and she would have been part of my life. Yeah, there's such a strong familial familial response to meds that I, I agree with you that you know the chance that she would have responded really well to Abilify is very high. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I ended up doing some research years later and it did exist right at the tail end of her treatment. They had just started trials with it. Uh and so I, I, I it's just one of those tragedies of timing in the universe that that she did not make it. How has this experience affected, or maybe changed, or or nuanced how you think about what happened with her, you know, leaving into the woods and her fleeing and again, almost surely probably hiding from people and and you blaming yourself and and now you go through an episode which seemingly was very similar kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think that it's still hard for me to forgive myself for that one day where I came back and I went to sleep. I still have dreams slash nightmares about that experience. It's still in my psyche. I'm just, I'm imagining Steve, like if, if your sister had been there in that country with you when you were so agitated and fearful and paranoid and, uh, and she had thought that she could sort of, you know, stay with you and, keep you from wandering off i mean maybe maybe not I yeah mean, you, you were i mean there it's it's true because having gone through that i know what state my mind was in and there were so many points when when i was abroad where that could have gone wrong i almost tried to disarm a security guard uh when i was abroad that could have... When you were psychotic. Well, I was psychotic. Oh, yeah, you could have been... 
that, that could killed or imprisoned. Really, or, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That, that could be really bad. I, I think about like this balance when you're experiencing psychoses between what is real and what has the stamp of reality put upon it by the psychoses. And it's a constant conflict. It is it is so intertwined and meshed and like feeding upon itself and te- like you were saying, tessellating and like repeating and, and uh, riffing on what's real and what's not real that, that yeah, I, I should have more empathy for myself because I don't think if my, my sister was experiencing what I experienced if if she experienced what I experienced in psychoses, then her conception of reality was so gone, and she had experienced it for much longer than I experienced it for. We can't know exactly what state your sister was in and what she was experiencing, but on the other hand, you probably got a serious window into that. Yeah. And um, while your sister had a, so much trust and love for you, she was almost surely in a state where her psychosis was overwhelming. That sort of brother-sisterly trust bond. There's just so much. Yeah. Both these experiences have opened my eyes to how how much a person is lost when they're in psychosis and how much there is a path back for that person through pharmacology. I've had a lot of experiences since I recovered from my psychosis where I've had interactions with people either on the street or people who are friends having psychotic breaks. The folks who I've had the interactions with where they've gotten the meds and they've responded to the meds, those people have come back. I wanted to come and share this story because I wanna help people understand that these medications literally give life. They give you your life back. They give you the ability to go out and build whatever kind of life you want to build. Um, but you have to be willing to take but them. But you have to be willing to take them uh, and take is, them regularly. Which is so hard with, with psychosis because by definition you're losing touch with reality. I mean, reminds me, I was in uh, Los Angeles last November to run at the LA Marathon and a doc friend and I were walking around um, Westwood near UCLA and there were psychotic people everywhere. Like yeah. every other corner people. Yeah. Um, I'd never seen such a collection of psychotic people in a relatively small area. And I remember thinking, I wish I could just walk around here with some clozapine and some, you know, in Vegas, Sten injections and treat these people because we could get these people out of their psychosis. But of course, as you and I know, they don't want it. Like if I could have said, hey, I'm your psychiatrist here to provide free antipsychotic care. No, 
because they're so deep in their illness and it's only once people emerge out and then but then are also willing to make the connection which you did which is that oh medication pulled me out of this and i may well need a medication long term to keep me out of this found out later after going on a billify that you were probably going to need to stay on some kind of medicine and as a billifier similar because of what happened when you tried coming off it i had an experience where so a few years after i had been taking my meds i was traveling i left the meds in the car and at the time i hadn't been symptomatic in a long time um, like I, I still, even to this day, sometimes get, get some like, like near sleep, uh, like when I'm falling asleep or waking up, I can kind of hear voices a little bit sometimes, but like during the day, I, I don't have any sort of symptoms during that trip. I was like, you know, it's only a few days. It's It was about a week trip, and I'm like, I can get through that. But literally, like, right after the, like, 72-hour window when the meds are supposed to be doing their magic, I started getting symptomatic again. And I, I started hearing the same patterns repeating. I felt like I was under surveillance. I was starting to get paranoid. Like the, the this was years after the initial. This break. was years after the yeah. initial break. Mm. When I got back, I I took the meds and it was gone. Mm. I realized that like I need this stuff. I need this stuff to be able to live my daily life. Um, Did you stop using weed after you had the first break? Oh yeah, after the first break, yeah. I, I stopped using all drugs except for alcohol. Yeah. Um, Cause it seems like that second break confirmed that you now had, have a, a primary kind of psychotic illness because you know, we'll never know whether THC uh, sort of uncovered the genetic vulnerability to that, or if this would have expressed itself anyway. I mean, based on, you know, an episode I did a, a few episodes episodes ago on the podcast about THC and psychosis and given your sister's story, I mean, my money's yeah. on that, you know, you and your sister had a genetic predisposition towards this and that with the unbelievable amount of stress plus THC was sort of the, the trigger, the, the poison pill that like caused that genetic expression for both of your illnesses. I mean, that, yeah. that's my gut feeling. Yeah. I, I, I think that's right. I think that that's something that, um, a lot of people who, are strong THC advocates don't really know about as a risk factor. Um, I, I don't think, at least with a lot of the people who I talk to who are in the cannabis industry and like are trying to start businesses and all that, I, I don't think they're aware of the potential risk for some 
portion of the population and who knows what that portion of the population is. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually just as a review, I, I talked about this a couple episodes ago on the podcast, but it's basically the group of people who are genetically vulnerable to develop schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder or bipolar one, which is about 3.5, 3.7% of the population is at very high risk uh, of having adolescent or early adult THC use trigger their first manic or psychotic episode. So yeah. I think you're right. A lot of people can use THC or weed and not get psychotic or manic, but they're maybe one in 25 people is at very high risk of decompensating. And that's a genetic thing. Yeah. And I mean, from my experience that I, I would say that risk is not worth <laughs> the benefits mm-hmm. because the psychotic experience is so traumatic. And I mean, just so life altering that really you're never going to fully recover from it to the, the needing the meds for the rest of my life. I I, I did want to just mention that the meds aren't cheap and you need good healthcare to be able to get the meds in the United States. If you have this condition and you aren't, employed in a nine to five and you're, I mean, I I run my own business and it's tough being an entrepreneur in normal situations, but like being able to guarantee that quality of healthcare when you're an entrepreneur in the United States, that is tricky business. And I, I feel like more needs to be done to kind of guarantee base quality of care for these meds and to be able to guarantee access for people Mm. like you 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 were saying that not everybody wants to take the meds but not everybody can get them easily yeah and to your point you know injectable antipsychotics which i and many other psychiatrists argue is one of the most effective and safest way to take them um particularly because a lot of people won't take them daily like they're supposed to. Yeah. But injectable antipsychotics are a plan exclusion for many, many private insurances. I mean, you literally, yeah. like with your expensive uh, you know, com- company policy, you will look at plan exclusions and they'll list some really bizarre kinds of things that you know, sketchy fringe docs would do. And then they often say injectable antipsychotics, which basically means that you know a percentage of the population is now doomed to way more time in and out of psychosis and mania and hospitalization and jail. we might end with this idea of gratitude uh one of the things i was so struck by when you and i first connected was that you talked about being so grateful that a medicine was discovered and patented that you take that allows you to run your company and be married and live your life and not go back to that horrific place and i guess i'm just so struck by that because you know there's so much um there's so much terrible press about psychiatric meds and there's podcasts just devoted to the evils of psychiatric meds. And I've actually gone on a couple podcasts to sort of 
you present the other side and say, hey, look, meds are not perfect and they can have bad side effects, but meds literally save people's lives every single day. And here you are saying an antipsychotic, which is a scary sounding kind of med, um, is has given you your life back and that you you have a ton of gratitude. And I just love that because I'm always trying to move my patients from sort of begrudging acceptance to gratitude. I'm like, what if you had gratitude for this treatment? You know, like what if you could well, really open your heart and be thankful that this exists, that, you know, that we're not in the pre medic, you know, pre antibiotic era or the pre psych med era where all we had was, you know, insulin comas and ice baths. Yeah. I mean, I, I am exceedingly grateful as I have tried to explain with sharing my sister's story. I'm convinced that if I had lived in another time, I would be either dead, institutionalized, chained up, locked up, like, and I would not be myself. And beyond not being myself, I would be in pain constant torment i mean that that is that was the characteristic feature of my psychotic break was just suffering i would not wish that on anybody i mean i have i've almost died a number of times in my life i'm not scared of death i am scared of that psychosis scares me the idea that we live in times when through the power of chemistry somebody can make a pill or an injectable and you can just be fine and not feel that i mean that is is magic and the alternatives to controlling what you feel for psychosis don't exist. I mean, I, I, was, I was very hardcore meditator. Like, I was all about controlling my thoughts and, like, being able to wipe away the thoughts so that they weren't there and just go into the meditation and focus on my breath and all that, that was useless against psychosis. I mean, I think of psychosis like a forest fire. Like it's going to burn until you have an antipsychotic in there or, or possibly ECT, but you're right. I mean, pre-antipsychotic era, uh, ECT era, the forest fire of psychosis would just burn uncontrolled until there were no more trees left to burn. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is a great analogy. Side effects of antipsychotics are real. I mean, outside of the the purely physical stuff like 
weight gain. Like, I mean, I've, I've put on a lot of weight since I took antipsychotics and I've been fighting to try to control that. The dulling of your mind, I think, is the biggest, the biggest drawback that hurts a lot of people that they, they have trouble with. And for me, that was, that was especially tough. I lost a lot of things intellectually when I started doing antipsychotics. But what I learned is that it's possible, it's possible to rebuild some of that. I mean, I'm never going to be as good at math as I used to be. Like, I, I used to be very, very good at math. And I'm never going to have that again. I'm never going to be, like, quite as sharp with a turn of phrase or wit or whatever that I used to be. But with time, it mellows out. Like, it's really noticeable in the first year or two. But with time, it can really mellow out. And if you keep on using your brain, your brain adjusts and, and you're able to, to figure out new ways of solving those same problems. And I, I think that, that that's the one bit of, of hope I want to give to people who are struggling with staying on a med course because of the side effects is that it can get easier and you can adjust to it and you can get to a point where it's not it's not exactly normal but you get by and you can you can really build your life again i feel like i've been given a second chance to live like i feel i feel just like as if i've been trapped under the ice and somebody pulled me out and they resuscitated me like that's what i feel like right now when i live my life every day is that like i have this second chance and i have it thanks to medical technology and i am again just super grateful for that A final point of clarification about psychosis, antipsychotics, and cognitive impairment. Steve described how antipsychotics both saved his life and blunted him cognitively. His working diagnosis is schizoaffective disorder, which we might think of as the mix of features of schizophrenia and the features of bipolar disorder. It is well known that cognitive functioning can be permanently affected in schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders. So I think it's also very likely that part of Steve's cognitive losses are due to the illness itself, not just the medication. We'll be back in two weeks. As always, we love to get your feedback, your comments, ideas. You can contact us through my website, craighecockmd.com.